kind of the biggest thing was the humanizing of everybody and knowing that, you know, everybody's just people. You know, you don't have to kind of be uh, shy or, you know, when, when you get in there, you can just be yourself. And, and that's what people kind of want. Show. I'm Jack Burrows. And I am Andre Prouty. And this is Miles Blakemore. Miles, welcome to the show, honestly. Really, really appreciate having you here today. Hey, Jack. Hey, Andre. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, everybody tuning in, uh, you'll just have to take our words for it. We look beautiful today. <laughs> right. I, my biggest disappointment, I don't get to look at Miles' pretty face. Yeah, or see me munching on um, uh, this all the snacks that I have like next to me this whole interview. Uh, can you imagine if like video pops on at some random time in this interview that <laughs> none of us know about? Yeah. That would be funny. <laughs> yeah, like, oh my God, you're, you're being recorded the whole time, really. I'm just going to pull up the list of questions we had. Honestly, it's an honor that you're with us today, really. I don't know if I've already said that three times now. Really glad you're here joining with us today. This is actually my first uh, interview where I, one, do it live for an audience, and two, do it with a co-host. Uh, Andre, I just brought him on today, really. Actually, a couple of days ago, but yeah, that's that, really. My first day on the job. Yep. And you're not getting paid one bit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I see how you guys run it here. Tight shift. Exposure books. Pretty much. Right. Pretty much. So Andre, just kind of from the beginning, really, just like where were you born and how did your parents get to know each other and where'd you grow up, really? <laughs> um, it's funny because I think my parents are at least. Oh, sorry, my sorry, Miles, right Miles, now. Miles, Miles, you, you answer this question. Good God. Did I say Andre? Jesus. <laughs> I was like, I was about to get into it. I was like, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Let's hear Miles. No sweat. I was going to say literally right now, uh, like the sky just opened up and there's thunder and lightning and water just pouring. My lights in my house just like blinked on and off. So I was like, oh, oh my God, God, you guys might lose me here. Oh, but um, oh, the no. power is staying. No, the power is staying strong. So uh, I'm in an older house, but, you know, we're holding up. So, uh, you know, props to this beauty built in 1930. Uh, OK, so <laughs> you basically just asked, like, you know, where I grew up and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm from Dallas, Texas. Originally, I grew up there, spent most of my adult life. Uh, and then I left when I was 22. Yeah, I did my undergrad at Southern Methodist University. Uh, and then ended up taking a gap year in between undergrad and graduate school. And uh, yeah, just kind of worked full time at Starbucks and then decided it was time to go. Was there, was trombone the first instrument you picked up? And like, how did music become a thing for you growing up, really? Yeah, trombone was the first instrument I picked up. What ended up happening was, uh, I, you know, I, I joined the band in fifth grade. And, you know, most people do like this petting zoo sort of a dance, you know, where they try a bunch of instruments, you know, buzz on this, you hit this drum, you know, try this read or whatever. I had none of that. The band director just took one look at me and he was like, hey, you've got long arms. You're going to play the trombone. So I was just like, cool, that's what's happening. I, I remember going home to my uh, mom and dad and been like, hey, you know, I'm joining the band. I really need to get a trombone. And they'd be like, okay, cool, let's do it. Um, but what is a trombone? And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> a basketball coach could have told you, hey, you're going to play basketball instead of trombone. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. It literally could have been, like, my life could have gone in so many different directions. Really um, quickly, fact, I'm curious, how do you guys explain trombone to those people who inevitably don't know what a trombone is? That's a good question. Yeah, if I can mimic it with my arms, I'll kind of do the slide thing. And I feel like most people can get that. I kind of say literally the same things. I always say it's the circus slidey instrument and then go with the slide motion. And then they're like, oh, yeah. And that's that's what I do. <laughs> 
So you begin on trombone, but like as you start growing up in middle school and high school, like did you um, have like really strong aspirations for music or did that come much later? And just want to be really good at the instrument generally, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I can remember the moment specifically. Oh. Um, yeah, so I remember sophomore year of high school, I was just flipping through channels on the TV. Uh, and I remember coming across PBS and it was like the second I turned on, I remember Channel 13, I heard the opening trumpet notes to Mahler's Fifth Symphony. It was New York Philharmonic with uh, Alan Gilbert conducting. And uh, yeah, I just remember hearing that da 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 dum. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'd never seen or really heard an orchestra before. Uh, but I ended up watching that entire thing. And yeah, I remember like the just. You blew me away. So the next day uh, I went to the band director and I was like, hey, I just heard this like Mahler thing. What, what's up with that? Uh, and so, you know, he saw that spark in my eyes. So he hooked me up with a little private lesson teacher. I started taking lessons for the first time. I started auditioning for like the uh, Dallas uh, Youth Orchestra, as well as like trying to get into Allstate and all the other stuff. So I, I just really wanted to, to, to play music at that point. And, you know, it all kind of culminated in, in an awesome career that I've been That band so director, he probably could have just told you instead, like, that's way beyond you. Don't even think about trying that. Like that That's like forever from now. Don't get your hopes too high. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think he, he absolutely could have um, just dismissed it or just sent me like a recording or something like that. But you're right. He went above and beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he kind of grew up in a similar way. You know, he was Mexican-American, kind of grew up in a, um, a you know lower income family uh, similar to me. So it was kind of one of those things where he saw that and was like, oh, let me take you under my wing sort of a deal. So he was awesome. Mario Casanova, shout out to him. Andre, you got a question? for him or yeah so you were in you know high school and you had this experience with the Mahler um hearing I feel like Mahler 5 is probably the piece that has inspired the most brass players um oh for sure yeah it has to be that well uh yeah let's like move forward in time a little bit so did you audition for music schools like were you like I want to go into be a music major be a performance major how does this progress yeah so uh, you know I'll tell you you know, it's not like the success started happening immediately. I still was getting kind of rejected from, you know, all this like youth orchestra, the, you know, all state and stuff like that for like a couple of years. And then it was kind of like end of junior year, uh, early senior year where like the success started happening just from like the practice, because obviously you don't go from like nothing to something like overnight. It really does take that dedication. But yeah, as far as progression, you know, I, I, auditioned for a number of schools um, and I'll, I'll just say, you know, three schools because I, I couldn't afford to do a ton of auditions. Um, so I, I just did Texas uh, A&M Commerce, which is just east of Dallas. I did Southern Methodist University, uh, which is in Dallas. And then I auditioned for Eastman because I, I begged my mom. I was like, I, I want to try to get into a conservatory. So if we can uh, like afford one audition that's out of state, it'll be that one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I took all those auditions. I was uh, fortunate enough to get in all three uh, and then from there, it's just a matter of who can give me the most scholarship. Because again, it was one of those situations where it was like, I, I can't pay out of pocket. But yeah, that was basically the the beginning for me. Um, and Southern Methodist University ended up being that school. You go to Southern Meth- Methodist University and now you go there because there's a teacher you like there, right? Yeah. Although funny enough, I didn't take a single lesson with him. What? But all the other people, I know I should have. But again, it was like, <laughs> it was one of those things where I already had a lesson teacher and it was like, expensive enough to, to study with him. So it was like, I'm not going to pay $75 or a hundred dollars to like take a lesson with every 
teacher at the schools I'm auditioning for. That said, all the other trombone players in the youth orchestra I was in studied with him. So I knew from secondhand that he was a great teacher and had a great reputation. I was just want to say, John Kipsman seems to be one of those teachers that has a big like studio culture, or there's like a lot of stories from his students about John Kitsman or um, uh, something about his pedagogy or maybe even his personality. But he seems to have like a you know, he's one of those teachers where you hear quite a lot about him from his students. How do you feel about that? Like, how was your experience with that man? Yeah, absolutely. So John Kitsman, the trombone professor at, at Southern Methodist University, uh, was also the principal trombone player in the Dallas Symphony for 40 years, was my teacher there. And you're right, he's built over that over the years a very strong studio culture. That man has a large footprint in the trombone world, uh, in Texas specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, in the Dallas area, I would say uh, the most common instrument you'll find is like a Bach 42. And that's because like, <laughs> you know, that was the instrument that he played on uh, and encouraged all his students to play on. So it's like if anybody went to take a lesson with him, you know, he suggest that he was he was somebody who's very or sorry i don't know why i'm talking about him like as if he's dead he's he's still <laughs> kicking <laughs> but uh he's somebody who's thorough in his teaching he's very impassioned about music and he's um very specific about what he wants to hear and what you know he feels like you should sound like so i think when you study with somebody who has that kind of a characteristic you know you start to gravitate towards it you, you know if he's telling you this is the way that this should sound you know you really and he, he's passionate about it you really kind of rub that rubs off on you and you want yeah. to be just like that yeah so i think that was one uh of his strong suits sidetracking a little bit did any part of your time at southern methodist like what did you go to southern methodist to pursue being a methodist like at all or is, or is religion just not really a thing during your <laughs> time there I, mean, I don't know but like was it really or not really yeah so it, it it's methodist in name uh, and I know they still do have a connection with the Methodist Church, but it's not a strong one. Like, say, for instance, Baylor University, uh, in, also in Texas, has a strong connection with Baptist Church. The one with SMU is not as strong. Uh, so it's not required that you take any religious courses or anything like that. But no, I, I didn't grow up Methodist. Uh, I actually grew up non-denominational uh, mm-hmm. Christian. But that, that didn't have any ties with my decision to go to that school. Again, it just kind of had to do with the strong culture uh, of that trombone um, studio as well as the reputation that uh, John Kitsman had. So during your time at uh, SMU, you go to the trombone performance major, right? Or something like that? I or? Just, actually, I started out music ed for the first two years, and then I um, switched to music performance halfway through the degree. Why did you make that change? Because like, w- when you're a music something, you, you start to think about what music path do you want to do? Do you want to compose for a living? Do you want to teach for a living? Do you want to perform for a living? What was something that more sort of piqued interest back then? Yeah, so I felt like I was kind of pulled in two different directions there. Obviously, music education uh, is quite strong in Texas. And so, you know, it has that security attached to it. I know that I've been in band program, you know, my uh, whole, like, basically adult life up until that moment. So, that, you know, I knew pretty much everything connected with band. However, I didn't know much about orchestra. So even though it was something I wanted to pursue, it wasn't something that I knew much about. So uh, I, I played it safe, you know, in, in quotations <laughs> and chose music ed. But then <laughs> as I was progressing on the instrument, uh, I think Kitsman realized that, you know, I had potential. He didn't necessarily tell it to me in those words. He's somebody who really kept that kind of stuff close to his chest. In fact, you know, I remember only got getting one compliment my entire time studying with him. He's somebody who really doesn't compliment you. Know, very often. Is that if he tells you something, it was my very last lesson. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to go on too many tangents, but I guess I'll finish up saying that uh, as I was progressing, he kind of told me like, "Hey, you should really consider 
being a performance major. He's like, I don't want to see you going way at this, you know, like I want you, if you're going to have a chance, like you need to be all in, uh, which he was correct, you know, and I, I think being torn in those two directions, I wasn't sure which way to do, but he kind of gave me the permission to just go for it, you know, and that ended up working out. Although, you know, now that I kind of want to go on that tangent, my very last lesson studying with him, you know, <laughs> this was like the first like compliment, uh, only compliment I ever got from him. He was like, uh, you know, Miles, He's like, uh, you're starting to turn to starting to sound good. I think you might actually be able to win a job someday. And I was like, <laughs> holy cow. That's and huge then, though. That's that's yeah. a, a big thing to hear from someone like that. And Absolutely. You know, really the this whole time that you're talking about John Kitzman, it, it makes me think even more how powerful you know, the teachers are and, you know, like the band director that, that you're talking about, you know, like these teachers have uh, a lot of power to you know let you know that you have potential or to encourage you or to set your life path one way or another. Absolutely. I was going to say not only that, but like if you can hear that from a man who, you know, who's that serious, uh, that kind of gives you the confidence going forward. Like, yeah, I can't do this, you know, and uh, everything's going to be OK. That said, I feel like he kind of immediately walked it back because he was just like, (laughs) (laughs) right after he said that, he was like, uh, you know, but be okay if all you ever get in life is like a regional orchestra gig and like a teaching gig. (laughs) He's like, be okay with that. And I was like, okay, there's the kids, but I know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So uh, (laughs) following the conclusion of your undergrad, do you decide to do a master's or what happens next? Yeah, so I ended up doing a master's, but uh, what what ended up happening between undergrad and master's uh, is I took a gap year. I I just ended a bunch of schools. I, you know, had the opportunity to save up some money because I was working all that undergrad. Um, So, you know, whereas in undergrad, I only have just three schools. For graduate school, I ended up auditioning for six, uh, and I got into two of them, Carnegie Mellon and Manhattan School of Music, but I, I always wanted to live in New York, so it was kind of an uh, easy choice for me there. But I knew New York was extremely expen- expensive, so I ended up taking a gap year, and I, I basically worked full-time at Starbucks and lived in my mom's house that year so that I could save up money for grad school. And then, funny enough, I felt like all the money I saved was gone in like the first three months. But yeah, uh, I've had that experience as well. What happened? It's, it's hard. New York is expensive. Oh, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> right. Uh, I was just like, did you like apply for one year and just like, oh, I'll come back next year. Don't worry about this year. Like what what happened? It's so, like you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I auditioned and I got in and then I just decided to defer because uh, even though I got a good scholarship, I was still, I mean, they didn't cover living expenses like an apartment and food and stuff. And I, I just knew I wasn't going to be able to work full time. Uh, while I was there. So I knew that, you know, I really wanted to focus in on like studying. So I was like, I'm going to take this gap year, practice, and then come back and just, you know, be able to put the blinders on and, and practice all day and stuff. Seems like they're really, you know, obviously they let you do that. That yeah, was pretty was chill. Nice them. They're like, yeah, take your time. We'll be here. Did you, did you experience any culture shock in New York City? Because like big city, everything's expensive. It's not Texas. It's cold. I don't know. There's hurricanes. I don't know. Every once in a while. Yeah. You know, it, it was definitely a culture shock. But in a sense, it, it's kind of cool because there's so many different people that live there. You can absolutely find your people, you know, like if you want to go find some Texans there, you can find some Texans there to relate to you. But I think one of the beautiful things about the city is it is so diverse. Um, and it really is like a melting pot. So, you know, I just kind of explored a little bit of everything while I was there. And it was it was super, super cool. I was just going to ask if you have any favorite like haunts, any favorite places in New York, some place maybe you miss today. Oh, my God. I miss the ramen noodles in New York. That was like a kind of a, a new thing for me. You know, <laughs> I grew up kind of, you know, eating like these packaged ramen noodles, you know, all the time that you can buy for like 25 cents or, you know, it's actually five. I remember you can get for a dollar, you get five packs. So uh, 20 cents, actually. And 
you know, when I got to New York, I saw there were all these like authentic Japanese ramen stands. And I was like, holy cow, these are like kind of cool. You know, and I remember having it for the first time and I was like, oh, this is way better than that 20 cents packet of ramen yeah. that I grew up on. This um, is ramen. So, exactly. Yeah. I remember literally going to like, I must have tried like 20 different ramen shops in New York in the year uh, and a half that I, was, I did my master's there. I just I went from place to place. Yeah, but my favorite one was the, weirdly enough, the one right next to Manhattan School, Gin Ramen. Fantastic place. I would just say, I may have been there. Gin Ramen, yeah. Yeah, and if you ever go back, it's fantastic. It's on 122nd at Broadway. Ah, noted. Excellent. Compare and contrast your time undergrad at SMU to your time at Manhattan School of Music, just like things you learned, what you progressed in, the opportunities you got, and like what you took out of it, like whether you went further learning this versus that. Yeah, I'll say the biggest differences between them is that one was a university and the other was a music conservatory. And there's two different complete cultures uh, between that. So, you know, with the university, you're kind of doing a little bit of everything. You know, I, I had to take a, you know English and history and math and science, yeah. uh, as well as a, a bunch of electives that had nothing to do with music. I mean, I think it helped to make me a more well-rounded people. You know, I wasn't in a bubble with just musicians. I was in a community where I was like meeting people who were studying everything you know taking classes with them was was great in that sense you know not only that but i remember there were other ensembles that i played in like i did the jazz band i did you know i had a combo i had i was in the new music ensemble and you know all these different things everything i could try i tried uh, and then manhattan school was certainly more like the blinders up um, like orchestra 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 in fact the, the degree plan i did there was the orchestral performance um track so i mean that's pretty much all i did I, I didn't plan any other ensembles besides that and it was great for the experience and getting ready to take uh, auditions um, which is something that i hadn't done before um like i, I took one orchestra audition in undergrad and then uh, my master's is really what kind of prepared me to start taking auditions right cool now um kind of moving a little bit ahead at some point you get involved and receive the Minnesota Orchestra Rosemary and David Good Fellowship. I'm curious, like how that came about. Like, was that an audition process? And if you could tell us a little bit about what that was and what your experience being involved with that was like. Yeah, absolutely. So there's um, a number of these fellowships for minority musicians. Kind of the point of them is to give people from underrepresented communities an opportunity to kind of learn, play, take lessons with, you know, members of the orchestra and play in these ensembles. You know, I, because of the, the, the number of representation of these orchestras is so low um, from minorities. So I remember auditioning for the Detroit one. Uh, they have a African-American fellowship getting runner up to that. And then auditioning for the Pittsburgh African-American Fellowship, they also have one. And so I remember I was close. I was like, okay, I'm getting run up to this one, run up to that one. Then at the Pittsburgh one, uh, I remember somebody told me that Minnesota was starting one. So the two biggest, the Detroit and the Pittsburgh, were the only ones that had brass players. And so I was like, you know, I didn't luck out at either of those. So I guess I'll just, you know, finish out school. But once I heard about that Minnesota one, I was like, oh, shoot, I got to sign up for that. So I did, prepared everything, and it worked out, really. Yeah, it was kind of funny, the audition for that, they were only going to take one musician and it's all instruments Ooh. auditioning against each other so you know um it's you know trombone players auditioning against violin players auditioning against two players oh, you know yeah. also yeah. one spot historically has not done well yeah histor yeah trombone against some of these other instruments in the string and woodwind specifically <laughs> not great chances it's discouraging. Um, yeah exactly but uh what ended up happening is uh, i remember making it to the finals and i 
had to go to the restroom like after I finished playing. So I went to the restroom and there was one other finalist and oh. I came back oh. out from the restroom and all the people on the committee were handshaking and talking, you know, and, and slapping on the back, the tuba player who was also in the finals. And I was like, Oh shoot. They gave it to him. Like, <laughs> and I, I, you know, when I went out to talk to the committee, I was like, all right, time for the bad news. They were like, Oh, there you are. We, you know, we weren't sure where you went, but um, we decided to take both of you. And what? I was like, Oh man. Oh. Yes. They, they took two people um, because they had enough money in their budget to do that. Um, and so it was great. I ended up leaving school early at Manhattan school and, uh, they were super kind enough to kind of help me, uh, finish the degree online. So it wow. felt like online school right. for online school. <laughs> uh, right. now that wouldn't be a big deal now, but back then, yeah, they, they really kind of cut some corners for me. And so this I was fel- able to do so, both. So this fellowship, like, what are you, what are you doing? Are you just playing with the orchestra? Like, what are you actually doing when you, when you're doing the fellowship? I'm curious. Yeah. You're doing a little bit of everything. So you're playing with the orchestra. You're also uh, observing rehearsals. You're taking lessons with the people in your section. You're also uh, engaging with Damn. donors a lot. Uh, yeah, and then sitting on committees, um, you get to listen to auditions. It's a pretty cool, extensive program. So it's college, uh, it, but so it's college, but it's an orchestra, and you and you get special attention from the entire orchestra. You and you, you and all the two, yeah. orchestra, obviously. <laughs> but like that was just like ridiculously amazing. I was just like, you're a fair of intention. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> I wish I got that honestly. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think there's a lot that you can kind of learn in school, but there's some things you can only learn from doing it, and that kind of showed me the ropes. Like, oh, okay, this is how it goes. Not only that, but it kind of dehumanizes a lot of the, or not dehumanizes, but humanizes a lot of yeah. work as musicians. You know, right. we kind of put them on a pedestal when we're in school. But then once you get to see these people every day in and out, you're like, oh, they're just they're just people that have jobs that are really good at what they do. And so that kind of helps with the audition mindset. There's literally no difference between them and me. Um, I just haven't gotten to the point where they are yet. You know, I think that kind of mindset that you're describing right now at a certain point when i realized that all people are just people including like people that i look up to like the kind of people i look to or specific heroes that actually had an effect on my self-esteem and like all things in life you know what i mean when you realize like everyone's just a person including the people like on the other side of the screen or the other people who have the kind of jobs that you want yeah not only that but then you realize too like nobody really has it figured out like everybody's faking it Yeah, totally. <laughs> know that very, very well. You know, the last thing we were talking about was um, the Rosemary and David Good Fellowship. And one thing that we um, were reflecting on while uh, you were out for the count, Miles, was how it seems really neat how that fellowship, at least, you know, for most people, I'm sure who take it, they're instrumentalists and they got the blinders up and everything. But you while you had the fellowship, you had that experience where you sat in board meetings and did all sorts of things that I'm sure educated you towards the business and the ins and outs of orchestra life, you know, the orchestra business, things that you don't necessarily do or have to worry about as a musician. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, and then it's, it's a great kind of intro course into that. So maybe one day if I end up getting an orchestra position, I'll know what to do off the back and I won't be taken by surprise. And I'll I'll actually have some experience with that, which I think is a huge leg up because I think a lot of people just focus so much on getting the job. They don't really think about what happens next. Uh, yeah, and totally. what the life looks like. So I know exactly what I'd be getting myself, you know, barring if I, if that, that happens in life, you know? Right. Well, so, you know, it is a job. There yeah. are things that you got to do. They have responsibilities that aren't like, you know, just getting to play, you know, Tchaikovsky and Mahler mm-hmm. every day. So mm-hmm. I guess it's hard to ask the question, like, what did you take out of it? I'm like, and, and you must have been like, of course, a lot. I can't pick out one thing and that kind of thing, really, you know? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I definitely took a lot out of that. I think, again, kind of the biggest thing was the humanizing of everybody and, and knowing that, you know, everybody's just people. You know, you don't have to kind of be uh, shy or, you know, when, when you get in there, you can just be yourself. And, and that's what people kind of want. About mm-hmm. when did you start being very active on social media and not just being active, but like every day or two, just posting a really humorous Instagram or TikTok reel of, of you just like doing your whatever funny thing you're doing you know you know what i mean something like that or yeah absolutely so that kind of came about uh with the pandemic obviously you know we were kind of all at home uh without a ton of things to do uh, and so for me, what that looked like was, okay, once I get all my practice in, it's like, what now? And <laughs> can't, can't, play, you can't know, play with an orchestra. There's nothing out there to do. Just rest or something. Exactly. I don't know. Exactly. exactly. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't see anybody either. That was kind of a, a tough thing. But at the, around that time, somebody had recommended, uh, you know, TikTok to me. And, and I, I don't know, for, for whatever reason before, I, I was kind of hesitant to think I, you know, personally have been one of those people who, aren't up on on everything you know uh, off the bat so i think all at that point i only had like a facebook so i wasn't really even on instagram but i downloaded tiktok and i just fell in love with that app i was like oh this is amazing uh, all the the gen z kids that are making videos and contents out here are crushing it i mean it kind of reminded me of the early youtube days you know when you had all these people you know putting content out there uh, in a video format it, it really does tiktok kind of reminds me of that early days of youtube so i was like you know what i'm gonna i, I missed the boat with youtube but i'm gonna jump on this one uh so i, I remember just making one video and i challenged myself to do that you know really put myself out there and then i had such a blast doing that and got a good response and i was like oh let me make another one uh, and then another one another one and yeah it just kind of got into a habit um where it's you know my schedule ended up forming where he's like rather than just waking up and doing some practice and doing nothing for the rest of the day it became waking up making a TikTok, you know uh, thinking about what i could make and and drawing all my music experiences and yeah and then posting it and, and it kind of helped me figure out both the instagram and the TikTok platform uh as well as connect to a bunch of people so I, i've made so many friends uh, and then now that things are um, opening back up, I'm also getting work from it, which is like really not something I expected. Oh, it's kind yeah? of blowing my mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, tell us about that. I mean, I'm getting a bit of everything. I'm getting playing gigs. I'm getting teaching gigs. I'm even getting social media gigs. <laughs> social, <laughs> you know, like what? I, what? Yeah, what, yeah, what I, is I, a social media gig? This is not a social I, media gig. This is an interview, or is it one? I don't know. No, no. Actually, no. I'll, I'll tell you this right now. You are going to get a free if you want, if you like it, a free product from my, my merch store if you'd like it but that's that's that really anyway go on sorry <laughs> holy cow that's awesome dude i would love that yeah man i'll rock that trombone channel shirt uh, <laughs> I have an American design. You should check it out. I'll actually, yeah, send it to you soon. Actually, it's in the TromaStore.com. Anyway, sorry. Go on. No, but I mean, I'm I, I'm getting paid to help people with their social medias, uh, and then I'm also getting paid um, to give master classes on how musicians oh. can run social media. So I put together a um, PowerPoint and a presentation with that. Yeah, and I, I gave it at the uh, International Tromone Summit. I, I'm giving it at the DC Tromone uh, Workshop tomorrow. Uh, and then hopefully at a couple places in the fall. So it'll be uh, great. But yeah, no, I, I've definitely been getting work from it. And I feel like this is the busiest I've ever been in my life, which is all come wow. from doing. Yeah. Crazy You've videos made online. yourself an authority in in somewhat of a niche thing, uh, relatively niche uh, for trombone world. That's wild. And yeah, absolutely. entrepreneurial spirit. You know, I, the thing I like about the content that you make, it's it basically it's like it's like sketch comedy really. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, uh, after you started doing it and getting more into a habit 
of it and, and, um, and getting and getting more followers like just kind of if we know off the top of your head like how many followers you have in this and that app like like what it's grown to i'm curious like it's not anything crazy follower wise i think the tiktok i've only got three thousand, and then uh, instagram i've got like 5500 but um, good. with that it, no it's still good for sure but I, I you know it doesn't matter how many followers you have it's like really how many people you're reaching and at the peak i mean you know you get this analytics i mean i would be reaching hundreds of thousands of people like a day which is like mind-blowing so i think yeah. that's the real power but yeah because you have all these people viewing your content um from all across the world and that really gets your name out there and helps in so many ways and so i think that was beautiful and, and i'd love to kind of get back on there i've kind of been slow with posting lately just because i have been kind of busy but I, you know i would love Me to too. find another pocket of yeah i know it's crazy i would love to find another pocket of time where i can just kind of devote to posting every day i like in these uh the content that you make there there's a theme where there's like a bad influence miles who always wears the beanie <laughs> and the sunglasses in the same jacket and then there's like the more innocent miles who's like just trying to do a good job or something like that can you tell us a little about your inspiration for like your two characters the two miles yeah absolutely so uh I, you know the guy with the sunglasses doesn't really have a name but i, I just kind of refer to him as the sunglasses guy yeah um, <laughs> but he's kind of the thoughts uh that i can't say you know <laughs> when I, you know when it's just me on camera you know i'm obviously kind of more pc or more politically correct you know in a sense where it's like yeah i'm gonna say that you know all the right things but you know when i put the sunglasses on then it kind of gives me more freedom because i don't think the audience sees that as me it's more of a b character mm -hmm. and he can be a bit, a bit more of a jerk and uh kind of brash so um he kind of says a lot of my inner thoughts and some of these things that i, I might not say publicly yeah oh that's awesome hey you get that that's how you get that outlet you just invent a character you invent a stick and then you can say all the things that you want to and just be like, oh, that's, I didn't mean it. It's bad. It's yeah, bad exactly. <laughs> it's um, like, that's not me. That's somebody else. I don't know. That's that about. other guy. That's, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. my twin. Um, now that you're an authority on musicians and social media or trombones and social media, well, you know, especially during this pandemic time where there's basically nothing to do, I feel like there's been a bit of a growing sense of pressure for musicians, especially like young and aspiring mm -hmm. musicians to be active in social media platforms and create content and be active in online communities. I'm not sure how I feel about it. Sometimes it feels like not a good thing, um, you know, to me anyway, like, like, you, like, like you have, like, like you pressure. have, like you have to do it versus like, you know, just to like be successful, just, just, yeah. just, mm -hmm. just lay back. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to keep my voice low so mm -hmm. that people don't look at something and be like, Oh, I'm going to fire you for that reason. I'm going to cancel culture, all that thing. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, do you relate to this feeling. And, uh, and so like, how do you react to it? Yeah, I, I do relate I'll, to that. I'll, I'll um, with, also remember a thing like you apply for this one job and they, they, they might look at your Instagram stuff. It's like, that's unprofessional. That, that does not belong in this, in this building. Get them out of here. We, we can't have this, you know, that kind of thing. Or, like there's a fear of that out there too. Yeah. Jack, as far as your question, I do feel it hasn't affected me in a way of employment just because a lot of big businesses aren't tapped into Instagram and TikTok quite yet, at least in the music side of things. Mm. Um, I, I noticed that a lot of the older colleagues would be hiring me for, you know, prestigious positions or, or um, you know, status quo sort of things are still on Facebook. And I don't post any of that stuff there for that reason that mm. I don't want to be seen as kind of unprofessional in that light. Um, but on Instagram and TikTok, you know, I seem like, I, I feel like I kind of have free reign there. I feel like the people that are in those markets kind of understand what it is. Like for instance, you know, TikTok's demographic is so young. Most of the people that are, I think I saw a statistic, like 70% of the people on TikTok, that's their only form of social media. 
you know, so they're not on Instagram or on Facebook. And so I, I don't really have to worry about a lot of the older demographics that kind of hold the, the keys to or, or the gatekeepers, if you will. So, you know, that's kind of how I feel about that. And if it does become problematic, then, you know, I, I would ask people to kind of be a little bit more open minded about it. This is the new normal kind of thing. I don't know. or Exactly. Like yeah. But as of late, I haven't run into any issues with it. Now, as far as to Andre's question, which is sort of like, the, you know, how do I feel about, you know, the, the pressures of social media? I absolutely do feel that um, and it's, it, it can be a, a bit much um, when you're seeing everybody's best of the best, you know, posts. I mean, that's what anybody's posting is they're, they're posting their highlights of their life every day. And so if you're kind of in that every day, it can be disheartening and it can be kind of a downer because, you know, it makes you, we're humans. We just have no choice but to compare ourselves to others. So when we see that, we're like, well, I'm not playing with, you know, so-and-so, or I'm not doing this big thing, or I haven't gotten married, or I haven't, you know, so-and-so. But I, I would, you know, say if you're someone who wants to kind of jump into social media post, but then get off of it. You know, I found that strategy to be helpful for me. So often I'll, I'll post and I kind of have little notifications if somebody like comments, but my, I try not to spend all day kind of on it and scrolling because that can be kind of harmful. That said, I do think it's important to have some kind of a presence on social media because I, I really do feel the way things are moving, whether I like it or not. I think you, you have to have some kind of a presence. The barrier of entry is really just sounding good, you know, on your instrument. Like that's, I think, going to be the bare minimum uh, going forward. So I think sounding good, but then also being able to market yourself and to uh, be able to grab people's attentions in other ways other than just playing gigs and, and the, the way that networking has worked like, in the past. What are you good at? I'm good at this. I'm going to play this and people are going to like it. You could try to be good at something you're not so good at, but you could just play that song you already know off the top of your head and play it every day. I don't know. It's like, do I want to work on this that improves my playing or do I want to keep doing what I'm already doing well at guaranteeing more likes? It's like, what is it? More likes or better playing it does and I, you know i think you can really have the best of both worlds and i don't think you really have to change what you're already doing one of the most common things you'll find with instrumentalists online is practice accounts where really they're just taking like a 30 second yeah. to a minute long clip of, of their practice session every day and posting online. And there's a market for that. And some people are really into it and just want to see what other peers there, you know, other, um, you know, highly professional musicians are doing in their practice life. But it's just kind of a peek behind the, the curtain. So, you know, I, I would say that's a pretty easy kind of barrier to entry. So if you um, are somebody who's interested in joining social media, that's probably the easiest way to do it is just to take a clip of your practice every day and pull it as posted on there. And one beautiful thing with that is that you don't have to worry about if it sounds the best, because for one, people are pretty understanding with this is just your practice session. This isn't the final product. Uh, and two, if you're posting enough, that content get, gets buried. So if you say post like five times in a month or something like that, mm -hmm. people probably aren't going to scroll back five videos. They're just going to see whatever your yeah. most recent one is. So that content that, you know, maybe didn't sound so hot, you know, four weeks ago, no one's probably going to see it past when you posted it. Or even remember it too, because like the more stuff you yeah. throw out there, the more, the more likely people are like, ah, that guy sounds good. I get great videos every single day. Let's let me follow him. You know, that kind of thing. He, he, yes. he adds this to my day and regularly. So mm -hmm. because I'm on the phone so much, you know, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. There's so many people doing it that, you know, you're, you're only occupying somebody's attention for like 30 seconds, really. So it, that's all it is. It's, it's really just kind of, um, put, you know, 
basically like saying something for 30 seconds and then somebody goes on to the next person. So, you know, you don't really have to be so self-conscious and, oh God, what is everybody thinking? You know, it's like, they're only going to think about it for a, a short amount of time and then they're going to go on to something else. Because what I'm hearing from you, Miles, right now is your opinion is nowadays to be a professional musician, a little bit of today being successful does have a hand in not, you know, maybe being an online creator, but kind of like how we were talking about before the interview started, just kind of, uh, you know, being able to do lots of different things. And yes. the so the question I wanted to ask uh, and moving forward is you are also a college professor at Howard University. And I'm curious, um, you know, you're a trombone professor, but um, now you're also an authority on the social media thing. Does this uh, make its way into your pedagogy at all for your students to be, I'm sure maybe not all of them are, are music majors, but you know, just to, does that make its way into your pedagogy to be successful? It does. It does. I, I, again, I think the barrier of entry is sounding good right now. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to strike a balance with my students because I do want to impart the wisdom that I've kind of, you know, grown to have as far as like social media, but I, I really don't think that, I, you know, I have to press them to, you know, be social media stars. I, I think that's, you know, sort of my path, but that doesn't necessarily have to be theirs. I don't think it necessarily has to be like you do your instrument and social media. It could be you do your instrument and know how to do video editing or know how to do audio editing or, you know, there's so many things that you can do, but I think the more you can uh, diversify, the better it's going to be for your income as a musician, because I think it's very, very difficult to string together a full income just on music making alone. So if you can find something else that's going to help you survive, uh, I I think, why wouldn't you try that? That seems like one of the most valuable things, the and, the I am this and this and this and every and you get is uh, potentially exponentially more valuable um you are maybe um that much more income you can find or maybe even that much more fulfilled you feel not necessarily Absolutely. people are different but the no, and. I, I think that's true one of my favorite books I, i've read in the last couple of years was uh, michelle obama's becoming the mm-hmm. very opening of the book she talks about how she used to go from classroom to classroom And oftentimes they would ask kids at schools, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she talks about how much she dislikes that question because it kind of implies that you can only be one thing. Uh, And she, in her life, has been a multitude of things. She's been a mother. She's been a daughter. She's been a lawyer. She's been the vice president. She's been uh, an author. You know, she's done all these things. First lady. Sorry, first lady. Not to mention first lady. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, she talks about, like, why not be more than one? thing. And that kind of opened my mind up to it because I, for the longest time, only thought of myself as a musician, but it's it's okay to be more than just that and to have other interests. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, not only is it okay, but it's good for you. Yeah. One thing that's been very fascinating to me are people who have backgrounds in music and use those skills or those soft skills to pivot mm-hmm. into other careers or also or maybe develop a, another career simultaneously. But with that background of music, that's yeah. been a very interesting idea and concept to me. People like that are very fascinating to me. Absolutely. And in fact, that kind of makes me feel a little bit better about being a cost professor because I know that not every student I have is going to be, you know, the next big thing in the trombone world. Okay, like, hey, hey, you um, can do this. You can do this. And uh, no, you can't. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But the, the skills are transferable. You're right. So 
Um, even if you don't make it as, uh, you know, the top college trauma player in, in DC, you know, you can also use that skill that you learn being good at your instrument um, to be good at something else. And it, and it won't be a waste of time. You're learning such valuable skills being a musician that um, you'll be successful no matter what you do. So you're a professor at <coughs> Howard University and you're going yes. to another different school this fall. I'm curious. Yeah, I'll also be teaching at Morgan State University in Baltimore. So, so it's going to be so you're going to have two colleges to teach at basically. That's correct. Okay. So Howard, as you and I and Andre know, is an historically black college and university or HBCU. Besides the fact, because it's an HBCU, there's a lot of, there's a majority of black people in, in attendance, just like administratively or just like, how does it operate differently from an, a different historically not black college and university? Absolutely. There are certainly differences. Um, for one, the culture is going to be different. Um, at, you know, most universities, the staff, the uh, professors, the your cohort are, are going to be a majority white. So if you're a black student going to one of those schools, you might feel isolated. Um, yeah. You might not feel like you belong. And, and, you know, the schools that I went to, I certainly felt those things. Meanwhile, at a, a HBCU, you don't have to worry about those things because everybody looks like you from the staff to the yeah. professors, to you know, mm -hmm. the other students. Uh, and so you get to focus on other things, not only that, but you might find that some of the teachers you have might be a little bit more supportive of you and understanding and just might take a stronger interest in you because they relate uh, in a sense. So yeah. that's one of the biggest differences. Um, and I, I, you know, while I've taught for a year there now, um, it's all been virtual. So I haven't quite got to experience the full fledged culture, but I'm right. so have, have a trombone choir together, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Doing studio class, all those other things. So it, it's going to be beautiful. And uh, I also want to mention that Morgan State University is also an HBCU. So yeah. um, I'll have that same experience at, at both uh, institutions. Another question. You're going to be teaching at two colleges now. How far away are they from each other? And can you just drive from place to place to make the next lesson or something like that? I don't know. Like, how is that going to work out? Yeah. So uh, it's kind of funny. I'm going to be making a triangle, basically. Um, so, yeah, the, uh, Morgan State is in Baltimore, which is um, sort of a northwest area of the D.C. region. Okay. Um, Annapolis, where I, I work at the Naval Academy, is sort of a northeast region. Uh, and then D.C., where Howard University is, uh, is sort of a southern point. So it kind of makes an upside down triangle. Uh, so I'll be kind of making this drive uh, in the fall between the three places. Uh, and I, I live somewhere in the middle. So it's actually kind of convenient in that sense. Uh, That's be nice. Sort of a yeah, exactly. It'll be sort of a twenty to forty minute drive, depending on which school institution I'm going to. Even even I know this from some musicians. Like being a musician is difficult because like the jobs are limited, and if like if you get a job, then that's one thing. Now find a place that you can afford that's also close. Maybe it's an hour away. Good luck. That's the music business, that kind of thing. You know, right? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I'm um, you know, from Dallas uh, and, and in Texas. Everybody drives these like long distances to get from place to place without even yeah. thinking about it. So I, I kind of grew up, you know, <laughs> driving like 30 minutes to an hour just to go from place to place. Now, that seemed like the norm to me. And it wasn't until I got to um, experience like the Midwest or the Northeast or, or, or you know, some of these other or, or Miami, you know, where I kind of realized, oh, that's not the norm everywhere. Like people kind of like to stay close to wherever they have to work and live. I me relate my, to that. Me, to me that, myself, um, me myself, my work is like 10 minutes from here, seven minutes from here. It, it's really you see, there it is. 
Yeah, and you're in Illinois, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm in the Chicago area. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, nice. <laughs> so, uh, one thing I was thinking of. Yeah, uh, Miles, you're describing. You're driving a like a triangle right now. Uh, you need to find like another two jobs, or maybe you need to avoid <laughs> finding another two jobs. So you're driving like a pentagram and like, some, <laughs> some trombone, like deity or demon or something so i don't know That'd either av- av- other avoid two jobs in in those locales or um strive it depends shape on your future you <laughs> i'm afraid if i if i added another two jobs i don't think i have to kind of get one of those time turners with something from like harry potter uh to make it happen i, I don't even uh, know how i'm gonna how I'm doing yeah you'd have now. to summon that demon to sell your soul for the ability to handle <laughs> all the jobs exactly <laughs> so i'm you know, curious. So, cause you know, you're working at the, the Naval Academy, um, mm-hmm. band and well, first I'm curious, what came first? The, the, when you winning the Academy band or the Howard job. And then also I just like to hear about, well, I suppose your audition journey and getting that, uh, that job. Let, yeah. Let, let's start with that. Let's hear about it. Yeah. So, um, I'll start with, uh, the audition journey. So I've only taken maybe six or seven auditions. Uh, you know, I, I, again, I didn't take any but one in undergrad. Um, and I had no, not a shot in the dark with that one. Um, you know, I just wasn't prepared to take auditions at that point. And then in grad school, I also only took one audition. So even though I was preparing to take auditions, I only ended up taking one. And then when I did the fellowships, I took another like two or three. And then the Naval Academy was the last one. But yeah, so, you know, I, I basically kind of got into a, a, a rhythm with the last three auditions or so. Um, I feel like once I finally advanced for the first time, then things just started clicking. Uh, and I know talking to other people, it seems like that's a pretty common phenomenon. Like there's, there, you just figure something out. And then at that point, it's like, okay, once you advance once, like, okay, then I can advance again. Then I, can advance. I just want to say really quick, I've had mm-hmm. the exact opposite experience. My first oh, audition, boy. I advanced and I was like, oh yeah. And then I've taken like... 12 or 13 auditions and I've advanced uh, one time in all of those since. And it was a pre-screen. So it wasn't like a live rounds kind of thing. So oh, wow. I've had the opposite experience. Anyway, please okay. continue. <laughs> okay. I, I obviously can't speak for everybody. I guess I should only say that I can speak for myself on that one. Uh, but that was my experience personally. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, you, you know, um, I hadn't made it to finals before, but knowing that I had a pretty good shot, I, I just kind of went for it, kind of went all out, uh, ended up working out with the Naval Academy band. So yeah, so the, the Naval Academy came first, uh, and you know, that was a full-time position. So it was enough for me to, to move out to this area yeah. uh, and, and leave the fellowships and moving out here. Uh, and then you know, while I was out here, um, Howard University was looking for a trauma professor and I actually ended up getting that gig through word of mouth. So, hmm. you know, that worked out pretty well for me. Yeah. In that sense. So not that I didn't have to interview because I, I did have to go through that process, hmm. but it was helpful that I was kind of being recruited in a sense and not necessarily the other way around. Yeah. They wanted to at least uh, get you in interviews. They wanted they were interested in you. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So one thing we, we were talking about before we started what is the nature of your performing job, the Naval Academy band. Mm-hmm. And something that I'm interested in is the fact that it is an academy ensemble. So your job is to be in a band that um, you know facilitates any of the performances at a military academy. 
So I'm curious if you could tell us a little more about the nature of that kind of ensemble, what that job entails, so all the different things that you get to do in that kind of unique kind of job. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll start by saying there's four uh, academies, uh, military academies in the country. So there's the Naval Academy, the Coast Guard Academy, West Point, and the Air Force Academy. They all have mm-hmm. professional bands, yeah. uh, but they're institutions that are both universities as well as military institutions. So they train uh, students to become officers in, in their uh, perspective, respective branches. So at the Naval Academy, we're training the future of the Navy as well as the future of the Marines. And so you're driving a boat. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not me, but you know, they, they're certainly learning how to. So there, it's a little bit for your university. But what's different is that, you know, one, again, it's it's housed by the military. And then two, they have these professional bands that are uh, on the campuses. So a lot of people kind of get confused. And, and it's like, are you a student there? Are you in a student? Band? And it's like they yeah. do have a student band. Um, but they also have a professional band and, and and we play for the students as well as the faculty and staff. So we do retirement ceremonies for the staff whenever they decide to leave, uh, which is fairly frequently because in the military, it's just a duty station for them. So if they're a professor, they're probably going to be a professor there for two to four years and then they go some their next station. And so we're constantly doing retirement ceremonies. We have to do funerals whenever those come up uh, for the Naval Academy. Uh, we're performing at football games. Uh, we're doing parades uh, in Annapolis. We're also giving wow. our own concerts. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a multitude of things. It's kind of fun in that sense that it changes from a day to day. It's not a set schedule. Like uh, like most gigs would be, we kind of get a schedule like anywhere from two to three weeks in advance. And it's like, okay, on Monday, you know, we have a funeral on Tuesday. There's nothing on Wednesday. We have two retirement ceremonies on Thursday. You know, it it just kind of changes and and it's uh, it's never stale. Was any of your time at uh, Naval Academy like working or just like working yourself out to the death or something like that or like making you do 10,000 push-ups or something like that or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so we, we did have to uh, or did have to go through boot camp uh, in order to, to join the band uh, because technically I'm an enlisted sailor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, I did have to do a ton right, of well, push-ups boom. <laughs> uh, while in boot camp. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then we also have to do the PT test every year. So we're, yeah, in fact, we're, we're preparing for that coming up. Um, so yeah, we have to stay in shape. What's involved in the PT test? What is PT? Oh yeah. Oh Oh, God, this is embarrassing. I don't actually know if I know what it stands for. Um, (laughs) it's physical training, isn't it? Paratrooper. Yes. Parachute training. (laughs) Something. (laughs) We're just doing a job, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But no, it's, it's, um, it's kind of been the same for like decades but it's push-ups sit-ups and then a mile and a half run and you have to meet a certain standard yeah it's it's not too bad it it really isn't but yeah they they actually just changed it so instead of doing sit-ups we're doing uh planks i guess because there's been a lot of back issues involved with sit-ups yeah the the plank is a solid exercise there we go (laughs) Um, i'm not mad about it no no makes those solid abs solid exercise solid abs it's good right on so one thing I did want to ask you about. So you've got, if I know this correctly, you've got a solo CD coming out soon, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, so I've been preparing that for a number of months now. Sorry, I can't talk. Forgive me. Uh, Not a but, yeah, I know. Um, but yes, I've been working on it. I actually recently kind of had to start over, embarrassingly. Oh, did you delete the file? I oh, no. I, I, master I, didn't. File. <laughs> I didn't, but I changed recording engineers. Oh, what happened? So... 
Yeah, so the, the uh, previous person I was working with was recording me in a dry studio, um, you know, which is what I've seen for like rock bands and, yeah, um, you know, rap and, and all this other stuff. Really, but I guess that's like not really like not equity places. Yeah, yeah, completely dry. I mean, like a little literal recording studio and then was adding reverb on top of that. Huh. Yeah. Um, nah, but I guess nah. from, yeah, from communicating with other people, including the current engineer I'm using. Um, it's like for a classical trombone, you know, CD, you really want to record in a hall or yes. a wet space where you don't have to add that reverb in later. Um, yeah. This is stuff that, yeah. that I, you know, I wasn't, from, you know, because again, I kind of trusted the person. I was like, you know, that's the way I'll go um, if you say that's the right way. But um, yeah, so but but I made that change now and, and I'm going to get started basically from scratch again. But hopefully all the solos are you know, easier to work up the second time. But yeah, so I, I was hoping to release it in the fall, but it looks like now it's it's going to be more of a spring of a 2022 kind of a deal. Dang. Uh, how far along of like your uh, intended program did you get before you had to start over? About halfway done. So, I mean, I, I really would have finished um, in time for the fall, but yeah, <laughs> not anymore. Damn. So also this is a CD of unaccompanied trombone pieces, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, during the pandemic, again, I didn't have access to a piano player. Um, so I kind of challenged myself. Or an organist. Exactly. Or an orchestra or a band or another, anything, you know, anything. Any of those things. (laughs) It was just, it was just a little old me, uh, in the practice room. (laughs) So, uh, but I still obviously wanted to work on solos and, and propel my career and, 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 um, you know, continue to try and get better. So what I found helpful to do that was learning the unaccompanied term own rap. I mean, what better time than when you're stuck at home? So yeah, I, I learned a lot of the rap. Um, and that was basically kind of the idea for the city, um, not only to, to learn this rap and record it, but to commission new works that, um, hadn't been played and, and uh, as well as find works that hadn't been recorded previously in the unaccompanied repertoire. So, um, but yeah, so that's kind of the idea of the CD is to go from the beginning of the unaccompanied repertoire up to modern day with new compositions. So that that's what it'll look like. And, and hopefully you guys will get to uh, see it in the spring. I feel weird for asking this. Like, what is the first unaccompanied trombone piece ever written? Or is that spoiling the album? Should I not ask? Should I not be asking this? You know, I don't know exactly what the first one is, but I was going to start with Bob because um, that's kind of the one of some of the unaccompanied repertoire I can find is his cello suite. So. Uh, that's right yeah yeah record one of those and put it on there i'm curious is there any sort of thematic concepts you know in this program or like throughout this album like does it i guess in a kind of simple way does it mean yeah is there a message does it mean something a little more to you or is it just music that you really like you know i think for this first one it's it's a lot of music that i really like but i guess if there was some kind of a theme and an overarch one more thing i wanted to ask you about the cd and so this is something I've thought about for like years and stuff. For a little background, John Rojack at Aspen actually once told me on the subject, you know, I, he, I probably came up for a conversation of like, what do you want to do in your career, Andre? I mentioned that at some point I want to record. And John Rojack to me was like, great, just, uh, you know, don't try to do it too early is actually mm-hmm. what he told me. And me personally, I took that to mean, okay, like don't try to record a solo album, uh, you know, just you because it's be before you're matured to a certain extent as a musician and trombonist, as a craftsman as well. So I think that's good advice, but it's also inspired some imposter syndrome in me. Like, am I ever going to be ready then? 
And I'm just curious for you, if you ever had any sort of feelings like that to put yourself out there on a company, no less for the whole album, how did you know that you were ready to record an album finally? Yeah, no, I, I didn't think I was. Uh, and and I, I literally thought kind of similar to you, where it's like, well, I need to wait till I've matured more until I'm ready. Um, I, I kind of, you know, had similar advice from uh, from John Kitzman way back in the day, because he's only recorded one solo album. And uh, I think, you know, he, he said, listening back on it, you know, he just wasn't as happy with it. Um, but I've kind of taken a, the approach with social media that I have where this is only going to be the first one. And, you yeah. know, if I'm not completely happy with it, that's OK. I just got to do better the next time. As, while I still want to make a great product, I know that this is just a snapshot in time. And, and hopefully I'll be able to even kind of listen back, compare this one to what other future projects that I record uh, and say, OK, this is where I was when I was in the Naval Academy band at 20, you know, uh, 28 years old. And, and this is where I am now, you know, at a, a undesignated time in the future, <laughs> you know? So yeah, absolutely. My question is, since it's unaccompanied, are you going to cheat yourself and just kind of be like, oh, I'm going to record these measures and play it over and over as much as I can until I get a good take. And then the next few measures, because oh, yeah. you don't need a, it's like, it's mm. like, it's, you couldn't, you couldn't get away with this with a piano player, like, but like on your own, like you could just like, oh, I'll record this segment and I'll get the best take and then I'll move on to the next segment and that's my solo. <laughs> but my thing is like, but if you do that, then then it'll clearly sound like you've spliced it together. You know, like it's not as consistent with itself. You know, like what do you think? What do you think, honestly? Yeah, I think I'm going to take sort of the orchestra approach with it. Uh, and a lot of what they, uh, orchestra recordings, what they do is they'll, um, you know, record them playing through the whole piece three times uh, and then they'll find moments uh, to snip together. So yeah. it's not that I'm, I'm not performing the entire piece, um, but I have multi, I'll have multiple recordings of the one piece. Uh, and then I'll just put the best sections of recording A with the best sections of recording B and C and, and sort of go about it that way. Uh, you know, it could be seen as like cheating in a way, but I don't think it's so uncommon. Um, no, and, not and at all. It's, it's yeah, not exactly. It's done. It's what's done. It's not yeah. cheating. Exactly. Exactly. It's like we we can do this. Do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is exactly. Why not flex the recording engineer's abilities? <laughs> I mean, if like, it's a recording and it's going to last for conceivably all of time, you know, like make a product that is going to sound awesome every time you listen to it, and you can do you know your live performances, and that's an experience. But why not make a super polished, edited solo recording? Why yeah. not? Exactly. Plus, you know, mistakes happen, you know, yeah. so I, I know for sure there's going to be chips here or there. And it's like, if you don't have to leave that in, why not? <laughs> no yeah, right, right, right. You know, one thing I like to look at is, you know, for instance, you know, it's a little a somewhat of a, a different situation, but like, you know, Jim Nova's absolutely outstanding, like out of this world perfection, Star Wars overdubs. Well, I mean, every single note is basically individually recorded just because of his process. And it's like you're never going to hear that kind of product live because uh, it's it's, you know, crafted in a studio. And he's meticulously tended to every single note being as close to perfection as he can get. And where else are you going to get that? You won't get that live. Um, certainly it, not. With it it was people. performed live at Ball State. I'll say that. The it was performed, but it and wasn't was, yeah, the was, same experience as hearing Jim Nova, eight of him or however many, mm -hmm. literally play perfection. That's like something different. That it's like a, it's almost a different game, ball game, in my opinion. Yeah, and, it's and I think cool it's worthwhile. You, yeah, it's cool that you get those two experiences too. Like you can also see him live or acquire, play those those arrangements live and get two experiences from it. You you'll still have that cool live experience, but then you can also go back and listen, like you said, to that perfection uh, recording 
uh, later on. You get the best of both worlds in that sense. Yeah, totally. I am uh, a proponent for editing solo recordings. <laughs> so, um, Miles, just kind of looking into the distant future, where would you like to be? I, I put in my I put in the Google Docs, Juilliard Prof Law, like. Of course, everyone wants, everyone wants to be a Julia Prof so they can get paid a lot or something like that. You know, where do you see yourself? Like, what is your dream? What is your dream job? Is it a college professor? Or is it principal trauma that negates your need to teach ever again? What is it? Or is it being a super rich Instagram influencer or something like that? I don't know. Like, like a two million followers or something like that, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, that question is like ever changing for me because I am finding myself uh, with interests um, outside of just playing the trombone. So I, I'm loving like the, the where social media is going uh, right now. And, and I think that's always going to be um, a part of what I do, at least a little bit. But I, I, I do want to also play principal trombone and orchestra, you know, like a lot of other people. Yeah. It, it's kind of what I've seen growing up. And again, I, I can, can't shake that memory of hearing Mama Five for the first time uh, as a high school student. So yeah, actually, this is going to be... Um, my first and only contract with the Naval Academy. So, you know, we've already had the discussion with the band, but yeah, I've got a year and a half left on my contract and I'm going to start taking auditions again. Yeah. But at the same time, I have those teaching jobs and I'm absolutely having a blast doing those as well. So I think the future for me is just going to look like doing a lot of everything. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Miles, is there anything we have not discussed yet that you'd like to discuss, I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, just, you know, if you want to reach out to me in the future, please do, you know, I'm, I'm an open book, connect with me online and I'll, I'll try and get back to you when I can. I, I love to talk to, you know, people all the time. That's another great aspect of social media. So, well, really quick miles, I would like to insert one last question. And this kind of harkens back to what we were saying about soft skills and things you learn as a musician and just like applying to all sorts of things in life. But I'm just curious if you can identify What are some habits and particular mindsets that you have adopted that you've utilized that has helped you move forward towards your goals and move forward in life in the the way that you want to? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it's been a multitude of things. I have somebody who's very focused and when I have a dream or something that I want to accomplish, uh, I work extremely hard um, for that one specific thing. I I know how to put the blinders on, you know, for instance, I I make a vision board every year, you know, where it's like I write down kind of what my goals are for the year and I try to hold myself to it. Um, But at the same time, I try to go with the flow and I know that things are going to change and and what you plan isn't always going to come to fruition. So I try to be flexible as well um, as while still having that specific goal that I'm reaching towards. Uh, I'm also going to be okay um, doing something else. Like for instance, you know, joining a military band that wasn't necessarily on my goal and uh, on my, on my way to becoming um, principal trombone player of an orchestra, but I saw an opportunity and I took it and it was a way for me to pay back my student loans to start kickstart my career, to do all these, you know, great things that I've gotten to do over the last uh, three years. So yeah, I definitely don't regret that. And, and you really have to be able to kind of go with the flow. Yeah. It sounds like you are in practice of writing your own headlines before they happen when you can. Um, just bringing your goals into reality by intention at well, every year and more frequently. Well, this would be the time we uh, um, we uh, ask the audience of one so far right now, uh, Silver <laughs> Server, who stuck who stuck around the entire time. Silver, I think our loyal a audience member. Yeah, pretty Silver much. Surfer. So yeah, Silver Surfer, if you were uh, thinking of asking a question yourself, now's yeah, the time. Just, yeah, just like raise your hand or something like that. Hey, uh, yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. You, very loud and clear. Sweet. Yeah, I was just catching y'all coming back from the office. So, Nick, all right. I just wanted to let you know that it's on. I was uh, 
really interesting kind of walkthrough on everything going on. Oh, I'm I'm really glad to hear that. Even though you're the only person yeah. listening, and just like I, I like how um <laughs> I, I I really like those compliments. Honestly, really. So yeah, did you want to ask anything, or besides compliment on how great we can talk to each other? No, not really. Actually, I think that that was a pretty thorough walkthrough. So yeah, no, just great interview. Awesome. We appreciate awesome. your viewership yeah. and support, Silver yeah. Surfer. Thank you. Right on. All right, Have a great day. Yep. Uh, now I'm going to boot you. How do I boot you? How do I get your <laughs> I don't ass? Know. Get him out of here. here. Yeah, How do I get your ass out of this place? Get, <laughs> get him out. Fuck out of here now. Let's go. Um, uh, I think I have to. There yeah. he goes. There he goes. He's <laughs> it's a, like, I think great. I we love you, Silver Surfer. Now get out of here. Get yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're not well, welcome anymore. Well, yeah. first, Miles, um, for yeah. taking the time yeah, to do yeah. this with us. And we yes. really appreciate you have doing this with us and just kind of talking about your life. We're just kind of like, I think a lot of things that we chat about were really like, you know, open the minds of people who wish to be successful, whether on Instagram or the trombone or as a professor and in, in all these regards. So I, I really think these are great conversations we had. Andre, and I can't say this enough, you did an amazing first job as co-host. Like oh, I was, I was able you. to just yeah. like sit back and let you carry the conversation and you did very well. Wow. I, like, I never felt like I had to like, like Andre, get your shit together. Let's go. Let's <laughs> go. You know? <laughs> no, but I'm really happy this happened. And I am Miles, too. Thank Miles, you. Thank you for helping make this possible. Just really thank you so much, honestly. And we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. It was so much fun talking to you, Jack. Again, thank I, you. I love your content. So hey, wait, I'm what about forward to hey. seeing more. Hey, what about mm-hmm. Andre? You, you like talking to me, but you like talking to well, Andre? I'm sorry, Andre. Uh, <laughs> I understand. It's great talking to you. Guys, <laughs> we, we me and Andre go way back. So, oh, um, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we uh, we met at a festival called the Lake George Music Festival in like 2016 or 17 or something yeah. like that. Wow. Um, but yeah, we go back since then. But but yeah, we totally dig each other's energies. We're we're good friends. Uh, awesome. You know, awesome. You know, Miles. So many people look up to you, and uh, you know, you know, people that you know personally, as well as just the internet and the trombone and musician community at large. And I just am so thrilled that I had this, that we got to have this opportunity to um, pick your brain and learn a little bit more about the man himself and some of your path and insights and mindset. Um, so just thanks so much. It's great again connecting with both of you. This has been an awesome experience for me. Just about the tough technical difficulties of you bopping out for no reason. <laughs> you oh know, my god! Like, I, literally, <laughs> I was not expecting the the weather to happen like that. It was kind of insane. Uh, thanks for you know rolling with the punches that way. No, too. it's fine. No, oh, it's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Andre did a very good job of improvising. Like, oh yeah, so we were talking about this and that, and you know, like. All those things really, but yeah, yeah. thank you, thank the you. The so show much. must go on, you know. Yes, so. yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> and really appreciate all of you sticking through it. Honestly, really. So yeah, well, Andre and Miles, hope you both have a great day, and I will see you around. Well, Miles Likewise. and Jack, I say the same to you guys. Thanks. Peace. Peace. Take care, guys. Good night.